Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Hello and welcome to Civil Discourse hosted by Todd Furness. I'm Todd Furness, your host, and I'm elated today to have uh, Dave Minifee with me. Um, really can't wait to dive into the conversation. Before we do that, though, I got to always do the admin work ahead of schedule, which is uh, if you like this content, please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, we depend on your support for the program to be useful and, and well-regarded. So thank you for that. Dave, welcome to the show today, and I am really excited about diving into this with you. Um, you know, you've got a different background. I'd like to kind of dive into that for a quick moment or two. Not many people start off in at the Naval Academy and uh, end up in in marketing. How do you how do you manage that? that that's that's a great question, uh, and the answer, quite simply, is opportunity and, and timing and and, and luck. Uh, in, at the end of uh, 1999, I had spent three of the first five years of my marriage uh, away from home in service to the country. It was all peacetime operations in, in the 90s, um, but my wife and I, who uh, we attended the senior prom together, decided that we didn't want to live our life, you know, 60% apart. And she was uh, pregnant at the time that I tendered my resignation to the Marine Corps, and I because of that, didn't want to go back to school at the time, take on additional debt, and really decided, hey, I, I can probably get a job somewhere in corporate America. So how, how do you do that? And I thought, well, there's probably three ways. One is I know where I want to live, and, and you know, I go find a job there. And in my late 20s, my wife and I weren't ready to settle down for the rest of our lives at that point. So I threw that out the window. The second is you know what you really want to do, um, and so you pursue that, that functional area. And Todd, I loved gunpowder and blowing things up and leading Marines, but there's not a lot of call for, for demolition in, in corporate America. So I kind of threw that one out. Uh, and the third thing uh, I thought was, well, maybe I'll find a company that will set me up for future success. And so I was looking uh, at, at companies like General Electric and their Black Belt program and, and Procter and & Gamble and brand management and said, hey, you know, let, let me target a company that I know values leadership, has a track record of, of producing great managers and, and great executives uh, and see if I can make my way into one of those companies and one of their core functions. And P&G at the time had a great junior military officer recruiting program. They've been doing it since World War II. And I got my foot in the door there and discovered that I really liked marketing. It's a whole brain function. It it's, requires a lot of analytic skills, you know, out of the left, left brain, but it also requires creative problem solving out of the right brain. And I found myself uh, throughout my, my life as a generalist. And so uh, the, the skills required... Uh, uh, to succeed in marketing matched uh, the skills that I, that, that I possessed. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a great entree into corporate America. I like the way you described that, the idea of a whole brain activity and the way you have to solve problems using 
all of your attributes. That's that's impressive. And I think you know, few of us at that stage in our lives, uh, you know, are the have the ability to be that prescient in, in terms of projecting what we need. You know, I tease my wife all the time that my brain wasn't fully developed until I was forty, uh, <laughs> which is probably why she didn't marry me until I was forty-five. But. <laughs> So, so you're assuming that you're fully developed now, now, Todd? Is that what you're talking about? It's the assumption I'm, run, I'm running with. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so you went from P&G, which is, you know, does have a great reputation for marketing. Most people don't think about this, but um, I would consider that both P&G and uh, J&J are both in the healthcare business. Um, most people see them as just consumer products people, but they don't really understand the breadth of the services, uh, products and services they offer. So how did, but how did you get from, from P&G into your next job? Yeah, so, you know, I had intended to be at, at P&G for five years and then go do the next thing. But instead, I found myself 12 years into a career at, at Procter & Gamble, enjoying what I was doing, um, not really looking to leave. But an executive recruiter called me and said, uh, and this is in, in 2011, so just a year after the Affordable Care Act had passed, uh, but not yet before uh, the exchange, uh, you know, Obamacare exchanges have been stood up, which didn't happen until uh, calendar year 2014. And the, the recruiter said, hey, um, I've got this job in St. Louis, which is a place I had never been to, um, in uh, managed care, which I knew nothing about, <laughs> and it's called Centene, which I had never heard of. Uh, but they... They, they've got a CEO who's, who's been there for a while, who started his career early on uh, in, in uh, brand management, and he wants a professional brand management oriented person to, to come to healthcare because, you know, as the pundits have been saying, consumerism is coming to healthcare. Um, and so, you know, like, like you, Todd, he, he remarked on my, you know, Naval Academy and Marine Corps kind of service and background and and you know the blue chip uh, name of Procter and Gamble, I'm, I'm certain play, played a role. So I joined Centene in 2012 as their first chief marketing officer. Wow. And and uh, we, you know, when I joined the company in 2012, it had just finished a year in 2011 with five billion dollars in revenue. Um, when I left the company in, in 2021, uh, it finished the 2020 year with 113 billion in revenue. So, yeah, so massive growth, actually a faster compound annual growth rate than Amazon or Apple over that period off a much smaller, smaller base in a very different business model. But, you know, the company, I think, really benefited from uh, changes in the healthcare industry. Um, some that were already coming, uh, regardless of the Affordable Care Act, and, and some that were were driven by the ACA. So, uh, for those of you who are watching or listening to the podcast, you see the hook and why I really was eager to talk today because you you were right in the middle of it when the ACA was launched, and you guys figured out you know how to. Um, be important in the industry at a time when the industry needed somebody to be important and uh, somebody who really understood what the implications of the ACA were and how to how to expand that. So talk a little about how you looked at that as an opportunity and and also as a threat. Yeah, we were uh, 
we were very nervous about the exchanges. We were excited about Medicaid expansion. Um, at, at the time, we were primarily a, a Medicaid managed care organization operating on behalf of um, probably around a dozen states by, by 2014. It's now you know, over 20 as, as we've seen growth, but we knew that the expansion of Medicaid would, would help our core business. No one really knew what the exchanges were gonna do. Um, and there were two really different approaches to the exchanges. And I'll kind of compare and contrast Centene's approach with Humana's approach. Centene's approach was uh, very cautious. And we said, listen, we know that this, this offering can be um, uh, you know, purchased by anyone, but we think it's primarily gonna be purchased by people living in the 100% to 250% of the federal poverty line range. Subsidies go up to 400%, but we really thought the sweet spot was that, that 100 to 250 kind of range. And we said, listen, we know this population. We're a Medicaid managed care uh, organization. We understand what the challenges of uh, the low income underserved population is. And we think that we can design a Medicaid up offering that will appeal to this population that will be low cost. It's kind of like a MEC plus plan. Exactly. And, and we were really focused on uh, the subsidies and how the subsidies worked and, and how that would factor into the out-of-pocket costs that, um, that members uh, would have to share. So before we get too far afield, I want to make sure that we define our terms here because some may not really understand what a what some of these terms of art we're using are. So let's just define them. So when you say you're a Medicaid uh, management company, uh, explain what that means. Yeah. So there are, are two large government programs that most of us have, have heard about. But before I took the job at Centene, I didn't know the difference between the two. Medicaid is a program run on a state-by-state -state basis that is um, largely funded by the federal government, but with matching funds for the state government. And the state gets to determine how those programs work. They're primarily focused on, you know, 100% or lower of the federal poverty limit. Um, before the Affordable Care Act, there were some states that were actually much lower than the, the federal poverty limit. Um, and it provides care to uh, children, people with disabilities, moms, uh, expecting moms, et cetera. And there's some other categories kind of on a state by state basis that, that Medicaid covers. Medicare on the other hand is a federal program managed by the federal government. The, the CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is housed inside uh, uh, HHS delivers or oversees these programs. And the Medicare program is primarily used by uh, people 65 years or older, uh, but it also has some additional categories of uh, you know, special needs that, that it can fund as well. And there are some populations that receive both Medicaid and uh, Medicare benefits. And Medicaid what, a managed care, what a managed care organization does, like like Centene and a lot of these other uh, insurers is 
um, we will take payments from the state and the feds and manage a specific population um, at, at our risk, which means that we're trying to make sure that everybody is getting the best possible health outcome at the lowest possible cost. Um, and because, you know, Centene is largely a taxpayer, you know, funded organization, it operates with very slim margins, it operates very efficiently, um, and really, um, you know, the biggest benefit is seen by members who have uh, the most health problems, because that's where we get into coordination and, op, you know, and, and kind of quarterbacking amongst several uh, providers, you know, medical professionals, doctors, et cetera, to help get to the best possible outcome. So to be clear, the way it works in, for Medicaid managed care is the state gets an allocation of uh, funds. Out of that allocation, it, it distributes a sum of money to Centene or Humana or somebody else. Yes. And then what they do, what you do is you manage that to get to a profitable outcome uh, by providing as many services and as high quality of service as possible to as many people as possible in your population under, under management. Is that fair that's, to say? That's correct. Okay, very good. So um, the ACA comes along, and I'm sorry, the other term we used was MEC, uh, which is minimal essential, uh, what is minimal coverage. essential coverage, I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. So these are the elements of coverage that are required in order to satisfy the uh, the ACA plan. So MEC plus is something in addition to the minimal essentials uh, and allows you to provide more uh, a more robust set, uh, set of services um, and usually for a higher a higher price. So so now you guys Centene figures it out and they say, hey, we got an idea. We know this population. We've worked with them before. We understand their their challenges, and we think we can underwrite the risk in a way that uh, we can deliver real value to all of the stakeholders involved. That's right. Which is the patients, the states, the feds, uh, and the providers. So off you go, and what does Centene do then? So for our first year, we were in a limited number of markets. We were worried about losing money. Um, and we wound up in year one with about 50,000 um, uh, members across, I think it was six, six markets. And by market, that does not necessarily mean the entire foot, footprint of a state. In some cases it did, but in, in many cases it, it didn't. Um, and we kind of learned our way through, you know, the population. And again, what we saw was a lot of members, you know, who had, you know, had been on Medicaid at one point in their life, had kind of earned up and are now in a different uh, you know, life stage, but they understood what the Medicaid experience looked like, um, which based on contracting with a network might look different than say a commercial plan that's, that's run by somebody who's you know, a member of a you know, Fortune uh, 1000 corporation. Um, that's the way, you know, health insurers and managed care organizations manage their costs is by contracting with providers that, you know, are, are operating in a way that's consistent with their, their philosophy and, and, and best practices. You know, our, I, I mentioned I was going to compare and contrast with Humana. Humana took a very different approach. They went to a very broad geography. 
they priced in order to win membership. And, you know, I believe, you know, from things I was reading at the time and their uh, uh, public statements, et cetera, that they were really betting on, hey, if we can capture a large portion of the population, we can hang on to those uh, members for life. So they're really doing a lifetime value analysis and making a, a risk assessment that said, well, we might not make a ton of money in the first couple of years, but over time, this is gonna be good for our business and it's gonna add to the book of lives that we're, that we're um, serving. And, you know, they wound up losing, I think a lot more money than they had anticipated. Um, if you remember a couple of years after, you know, the Affordable Care Act exchanges went to market in 2014, there was, you know, uh, you know, Humana basically put themselves up for sale you know, Aetna almost purchased them, uh, you know, that, that deal kind of uh, fell through from, uh, for regulatory concerns, but Humana was, was in a difficult financial position because of, of the risk they took. There were some other competitors like United and, and Aetna who were kind of playing in between the way Centene and, and, and Molina went to market, the way Humana went to market, but a lot of those companies wound up pulling out of specific markets where they were they were just losing too much money. And there was, you know, in, in the bill and then in the regulations around the bill, there were certain rules about how quickly an insurer could increase premium payments from a year-to-year -year basis. And so what we saw a lot in 2015, 16, 17 is a lot of insurers just said, we, we can't, we can't up our premiums enough, fast enough in order to, to maintain profitability in this space. Um, whereas Centene and, and uh, one of Centene's competitors, Molina, kind of figured out this Medicaid plus thing, which was different than a commercial minus program. And there were two things that were going on. Medicaid plus thing, I got pretty low expectations for what I'm gonna get out of my healthcare. You know, I'm not paying anything potentially with my subsidies, just glad to have it and I can use it when I need it. Whereas if I had previously been, you know, a, a high user, you know, commercial person, and guess what? If I'm a high user, I'm more likely to purchase that kind of commercial minus product because I know I'm going to be using it. Um, and so there was just a lot higher usage um, you know, I, I, I believe uh, of those of those members than than uh, what Centene's kind of membership looked like. So, in essence, uh, you guys found your way in a in a way that's helpful. Um, what would be the average amount, just rough numbers, that somebody would pay under under one of the plans for a, a deductible? I mean, uh, first of all, the premium, then the deductible. Yeah. So. The deductible is hard to say. I mean, all, all of these, these plans that went to market had to be actuarially sound. And so there's two ways to kind of manage the actuarial soundness of a plan. One is to have a pro high premium and a low deductible. The other is to have a low premium and a high deductible, right? It, based on the, the actuarial science, both of those products are the same just happens to be if you, you know, wind up being a high user of the healthcare system in that, in that particular year, 
But for most of the population that um, Centene was dealing with, you know, kind of under that 250% of the FPL, um, a lot of members were, were playing uh, nothing in, in, in monthly premium. And that's because of the way the subsidies works and the way CMS kind of managed um, the way costs and premiums were paid within a market where the insurers would offer their bids, CMS would do some work, and the second lowest silver plan uh, would receive kind of full subsidy reimbursement at that lower income level and then kind of move up from there. And what about the premium? I mean, uh, deductibles. So we had, you know, we had deductible plans and I don't, you know, this might be wrong, <laughs> but directionally we had deductible plans that were somewhere in the $2,500 to $5,000 range. Right. So if you think about it, um, you know, what I've seen in the, in the more traditional private insurance space is uh, the deductible is seldom met. Uh, and the premiums can also be high. And so whether or not your, your, uh, your premium's high or low doesn't matter as much if you don't meet your deductible because you're gonna be paying your premium and you're gonna be paying for most of your routine care costs at full retail anyway. You're not, getting a, you're not even getting the, the theoretically benefit, a beneficial uh, pricing of an insurance negotiated uh, rate uh, for an in-network service. Um, so it seems to me that that creates a model where we're necessarily paying the most we possibly can for healthcare because we're paying for insurance we're not using and a deductible we don't hit and we're still paying for all the services out of pocket until we get to the deductible and then once the deductible is met even if that ever happened which in 80 to 90 percent of the cases in America doesn't happen you have to find yourself in a situation where uh, you still have to pay a copay uh, on top of that. So how is that, uh, how did you guys create something better or did you uh, than, the, than the traditional private mo model? Well, I mean, I, I, I think this is a very deep subject, Todd, and we could talk three and a half days on this. Like the, the reality of the healthcare system in the United States is, is very, very complicated. Right, it, it it's not like buying a hamburger at a fast food joint. Right, the the analogy would be, hey, I want a, I want a happy meal, and you get to the counter, and the guy at the counter says, okay, it's going to be twenty five cents. And you're like, wow, only twenty five cents for a happy meal, and he says, no, no, that's what you have to pay right now, but in the mail in thirty days, you're going to get a bill for how much we're actually gonna charge you, right? $4,765. Yeah, <laughs> and the reality is, let's say that hamburger costs a dollar, right? right? Somebody on Medicaid is paying 50%, I'm sorry, 50 cents for that service. And actually the person's not paying it, the government is. Right. And that service the government pays for somebody on Medicare is 75 cents. Well, the hamburger still costs a dollar. So the guys who are on commercial plans are actually paying a buck 25 or a buck 50 or $2 for that hamburger in order for the economics of the healthcare system to kind of net out where, where it needs to be. 
So, you know, pricing, contracting, negotiation, et cetera, is all still extremely opaque in the healthcare system, which makes it very difficult, Todd, to your point, to, to affect great behavior change from a, a health standpoint. Now, the good news on, you know, Medicaid plans and, and certainly the, the Obamacare plans that, you know, Santina is offering is that basic services are covered. Your annual visit is covered. Your annual mammogram is covered. Uh, maternity care is covered, right? And so for the most urgent, uh, you know, daily or annual kind of maintenance needs, that's all covered and you're not paying out of pocket for that. There's not, you know, additional fees associated with it. Where you get into the deductible issues or the maximum out-of-pocket issues or the co-insurance issues. And yes, people, these are all terms. Go look them up on the internet. You'll still, still probably be confused after, afterwards. But where you know, a patient is suffering from multiple comorbidities or a long bout of health is, is where you get into you know, you know, additional uh, medical debt. And, and you know, certainly I, you know, I have a neighbor who recently passed away from ALS and, you know, the neighborhood was doing fundraising, et cetera, because not everything that he needed to maintain a good quality of life was covered by the insurance. And so, you know, having to buy wheelchairs and, 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 uh, you know, electronic devices that helped him maintain communication is all going to be coming out of pocket. And so, you know, the system is complicated and, and certainly, um, Far from perfect. So, but they, those those expenses could be covered under an HSA you, with HSA dollars, health savings accounts dollars, which means they're pre-tax, which would be a little bit of a help. Sure. Uh, but um, but you got to remember, Todd, you, you, that what you're talking about there is is important for the upper forty percent of the income spectrum. But for the bottom 50% of the income spectrum, that the HSA is kind of a meaningless uh, item because people don't have $400 in savings for an emergency. They're certainly not saving for health on top of it, and they're not paying income tax either. So, um, you know, yeah, I'm actually in my it's book. Good, it's actually, good for some of us. No, I've actually advocated in my book something I think was fairly controversial, which is a matching program. Um, there would be subsidized by taxpayers, where if people below, uh, maybe even still eligible for Medicaid, <laughs> excuse me, um, if they could put $10 into an HSA, it would be matched with an X to one, you know, five or six to one match so that you'd build up a, you know, a little bit of reserve in that HSA and that can be drawn down upon as needed, you know, at some point in the future. Obviously, it wouldn't be until after they exited Medicaid, assuming that they were able to do so. Um, but I think that, that at least squirrels away money for use in, in uh, and to create and kind of reinforce this concept of consumerism uh, so that we can have more market forces and downward pressures on, on the cost of healthcare. Because I, I think a lot of people, a lot, lot of the industry really, really isn't focused on genuinely reducing the price of healthcare. Um, Obviously, you guys were doing something different because you had a managed care responsibility where you're getting a sum of money to manage the health for a population. But it's not that way for all folks. The premiums that were being paid, though, 
were some amount, right? So let's imagine it would be probably two fifty to five hundred dollars a month. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Okay. So let's imagine you say for easy math, that's five hundred dollars a month, and that's six thousand dollars a year that one would pay in premium. That's actually that that six thousand dollars could buy a lot of healthcare when you think about it. If you just paid for ca paid cash directly, is, is it really a so what do we what are we really insurance insuring against other than catastrophic healthcare outcomes? Or it seems to me like even the six thousand dollars is a lot. It is, but like the, this is the whole concept behind insurance, and and health insurance is not a typical insurance product, right? Most insurance products we intend never to use. Like, I hope I never have to use my homeowner's insurance or my auto insurance. Yeah, exactly right. Whereas health insurance is a product that we intend to use, and it's actually better for the system if we're using it on an annual basis and getting our checkups, et cetera. So well, well, let, it, let, me, let me kind of challenge that a little bit. Is it really? I mean, if I have a choice between using insurance to pay my annual physical or paying the annual physical itself directly, I can probably get a physical for 20, 35 bucks. Yeah, but so the, so the insurance, this is why I said it, it's, it's a, it's a bad way to think about insurance, right? Because the health insurance program in the country is not necessarily designed to protect individuals from catastrophe. It's designed to protect the population from catastrophe. Because the reality is that Centene's, 5% five, 5 of Centene's members who are the most ill accounted for probably 30 or 40% of the total costs. So, Certainly, there are 50% of the population that accrued almost no costs. But because Centene is operating on behalf of the United States government, the United States taxpayer, it's better to understand the total costs of the healthcare system and figure out some way to pay for the total costs of, of the system. And the United States government is either wholly or largely underwriting uh, the healthcare costs for over 50% of the population. So I had a conversation recently with, uh, on this podcast, with a guy named Vic Gatto. And Vic is out of Tennessee, and he's got a venture capital firm. And, and we were talking about this, and he said, Todd, you, you misunderstood health insurance. He said, health insurance is not an underwriting of risk. It's a, so, a social compact amongst its members to share risk. And, and that was a that was an interesting look at it. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. And, and Vic, Vic is a smart guy. So it's not surprising that he said it better than I did. <laughs> he, he just used different words. Yes. <laughs> so, but I guess what I'm saying is that that is not something that's really communicated to the end user who's kind of been, in my view, somewhat seduced into believing that healthcare insurance is something that that individual is participating because that individual needs to for that individual, not because they believe they're doing some altruistic social good by participating in a social compact in which they're underwriting risk across the entirety of the population served by that underwriting. I think that's right. And I think it's, it's similar to the education system in the country. And you know those, those two industries, healthcare and education, are 
you know, have consistently over the last 50 years inflated at much higher than the average inflation rate. Those two industries are the number one and two line items for state budgets. And those two industries are, uh, you know, carrying a lot of government uh, underwritten debt, right? So this is, this is a huge issue that needs to be addressed. And, and Todd, you know, talking about, you know, the five for, for one matching, like you're going to put financial literacy and health literacy to the, the two most illiterate things that the American population struggles with together and, and hope that we're going to find a simple, easy way to communicate this, man, if I could figure that, that out, then <laughs> I'll be making some money somewhere, brother. Well, I believe in, I actually believe in the American soccer mom. And what I mean by that is really the American mother, whether she's single or not, uh, the American, I believe the American mother will know how to, you know, acutely manage her dollars and cents. And if I said to an American, into a mother, I said, I'm going to put $10,000 into your health savings account. And you, you can only spend that on healthcare needs for your family, you and your family. And you get to negotiate the price of the delivery for every service you get and every product you get. I guarantee you there will be money left over at the end of the year. It will definitely happen. And there won't be any compromise in services rendered to the family of that mother because she will work very hard. And I'll give you an example. Um, I have a, had an assistant who said she needed an MRI and her deductible was $3,000. And she said, hey, I just read this guy Furnace's book. He told me I could negotiate. What's your cash price? So before she asked that question, she was told that the negotiated price for the MRI was $3,200 and the radiologist report was $800. So a total of $4,000 of which she was to pay the first $3,000 as her part of her deductible. Now, notwithstanding any copay, let's just work with that number because it sure. makes for easy math. So she's going to pay $3,000 out of the $4,000. And she says, what's your cash price? The answer for the MRI and the radiologist report combined was $562. So she saved $2,438 right off the bat that could be used for anything else she wanted. And if she paid that with her HSA, obviously, then that keeps a lot of that money in the HSA. And it just goes to show you that the, that the prices are, as you pointed out earlier, necessarily inflated in, in, in support of this broader social compact that we some of us have unwittingly participated in because it's, sub, it's subsidizing Medicaid and Medicare prices. At the same time, however, most hospitals today have financial assistance policies, which will take care of up to four times the federal poverty level and reduce the amounts that are required to be paid either in, you know, in full or by half as well. So I guess I'm kind of, I think there's a right answer here. I just don't know that the, the I, I feel like there's a way to get a lower premium price paid because essentially you're creating for yourself a dividend. You're saying, I'm going to keep this money for myself instead of paying it to an insurance company in the hopes that I get coverage should I need it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the, real, the reality, Todd, is that there's still, you know, a trillion dollars a year or whatever the number is spent on the healthcare system. Well, actually, it's worse than that. I just yeah. looked at these numbers. Medicare, when LBJ signed it in 1965, cost the United States $10 billion. 
It last year cost the United States, just Medicare cost the United States $926 billion. It was a 30X increase per person covered by my math, which is astonishing. And again, it, to me, it goes back to the fact that we don't have any market pressures on pricing. If you had said, you know, what's the cost of a computer during that period of time, the cost per compute capability is, has plummeted. By contrast, the cost of healthcare has just gone through the roof. Well, there's, there's a couple of things to unpack there. Uh, and you're right, you know, in 1965, healthcare was 5% of GDP. It's, I think, over 20% of GDP now. So not only has the GDP pie gotten bigger, but the slice of healthcare has gotten bigger. And there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of reasons for that. Advances in healthcare, you know, uh, life expectancy, et cetera. But there's also, you know, the dirty secret of a lot of healthcare, which is the way most of cor corporate America makes money is by getting more efficient at things, right? Instead of me by myself making one widget a day, there's 10 of us who are doing specialized uh, operations to manufacture that, wi that widget. And together, the 10 of us are producing 50. So I should have only produced 10, 10 people, one per day, and now I'm 50. That's great. Doctors, medical doctors only have a set number of hours in a day that they can work, right? They can't see two patients at once, right? And as the population expands, the, the number of medical prof professionals is very hard to turn a spigot on and just make a lot more of. And I, I think the number of of medical schools today is pretty similar to the number of medical schools 25 years ago. It's not like we're producing a lot more medical doctors. Now, could we as a system produce more physicians assistants and nurse practitioners? Certainly. And I think that that can be part of the solution. But we also as a society need to realize that, you know, the mental health of our medical professionals prior to even March of 2020 was at high risk. I mean, I think I think the number one cause of death for physicians uh, in the 50 to 60 year old range is is suicide. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure on the system, Todd. That's more than just can we get more efficient and is there their pricing you know efficiency that we can find? We certainly can. Um, you know, and, and I think the government has a role potentially to play in that, that will be different than the role that it's currently playing now, but trying to get the government to do anything in, in today's political environment is, is, is fraught. So the challenge I have with that is that if you take a look at the expense, most of it has come in the administrative area of healthcare. Um, and doctors are, are analogous to lawyers back in the 60s before Medicare uh, and other forms of insurance came into, into, into fashion, vogue, uh, they were still billing based on time. Um, and now they're, you know, like a, a most doctors on a, uh, an existing patient are getting paid on six minute increments. On a new patient it's 10 to 12 minute increments. And so it's still somewhat of a time-based element, but you're right, they do have limited time. And so there's a finite amount of that supply that we have to spread around. And a lot of that also deals with other issues I don't want to drive into because we could be here for years. <laughs> talking about this stuff. But like, you know, a lot of this stems back to Abraham Flexner's report in 1910 and how he created the whole model for education and licensing that was adopted over the next 30 or 40 years by every state. 
um, requiring a four-year degree and you know all the other stuff. Um, and some of that bled into nursing as well. So we have we do have those structural problems, but on the on the billing issue, I would say submit to you that again, cash payments really help a lot of that stuff because you don't have to do things like take the risk and the expense on of filing a claim. So if you get cash at the point of service, you don't have to fill up that claim. And in Dallas, where I am right now, of course, uh, the nurse, and I use the term loosely to, which includes all administrative functions, the nurse to doctor ratio is nine to one. And so if you were to cut out the amount of time required to do, you know, coding and billing and claims processing, you know, one out of every five claims is rejected on the first round. And so doctors also have a corresponding cash flow problem that's, that's not built into the model because when claims are rejected, they don't get the cash for the payment of the service. And that means that they don't get the cash for 60 to 90 to 120 days, if ever. And then there's a, you know, I'm dealing with a hospital right now that's got an issue because all of a sudden the insurance company randomly said, hey, we need to go back and do an audit on the medical necessity of these procedures. Okay, so that puts everything in abeyance for three yeah. to six months. So the administrative overhead associated with provision of care operates to the detriment of the entire system. And without the ability to kind of directly contract, like for example, again, here in Texas, you, you can't negotiate your, your insurance at all with your carrier. The reason for that is because you don't have any privity of contract. Like, and I get my insurance through my company who gets it from a broker who gets it from a carrier, Well, the carrier negotiates price, not with me, not with a broker even. They, get a, they negotiate their price with the State Department of Insurance. So it's fully baked before it ever comes to market. I don't have a choice. And so what happens is an army of Wharton grads go down to Austin and they tell folks in Austin how you know, grim and bad it is because their costs have gone up. And the folks in Austin say, yeah, it looks to me like you're right. And they say, well, we have to raise premiums. And they say, yeah, it looks like we're right. And so as a result of that, those of us on the other end say, oh, gosh, I'm so happy because my premium has only gone up 15% this year. And that's after it went up 30% last year and 20% the year before. So, again, I go back to, you know, the, the role of the mom in any socioeconomic category is really critical to um, helping get drive prices down. Um, but again, you know, the, the role, what we see in public health is just so, so wildly different because, you know, government resources are being deployed and you're using population health and it's a, it's a very different uh, model than a lot of traditional insurance models. So tell me now, I want to bridge into how you leveraged all this experience into what you're doing now, which is, you know, around culture and sustainability. What, what are you, what are you doing today? Yeah. So you know, we, we mentioned kind of uh, my whole brain interest in, in approach and at P&G, I became very interested in uh, purpose and, you know, everybody's heard Simon Sinek talk about this and, you know, not, not necessarily everybody understands what he, he's talking about. And there's some other, some other good authors on it. Jim Stengel, who's the former global marketing head for, for Procter & Gamble has a, has a, a practice right now that, that focuses on purpose and, and uh, there, there's some other good authors out there. But you know, at the end of the day, uh, and we hear about this talking about the, the five generations that are in the workforce right now and in our different interests and different motivations, at the end of the day, I think it's easier to cheer for something that isn't 
2% margin. <laughs> so at, at Centene, uh, when I joined the company, we had been a very mission-driven organization. And I'll define two terms here. Mission is, is what the company does. Purpose is why the company does it. And Centene's mission was and still is to improve health outcomes and lower costs. That's great. Which of our competitors doesn't want that? The answer is none. It's a statement of the category mission. And it's okay to have a category mission statement. But what makes Centene different than their competitors? And you know, we did some work to uncover what that insight was for, for our employees. And Centene exists to transform the health of the community one person at a time, right? Which is a focus on the individual, but on behalf of the state, you know. And I think that's very consistent uh, with what the company does. And Centene employs nurses and social workers. And man, it's just a lot more enjoyable to work for a community health transformation company than a lowering cost company, right? And so what I do now is I, I work with, with individuals and, and uh, business organizations and nonprofits to help articulate their purpose. Why? Why do they do what they do? And then after we understand that and pair it with their mission, you know, understand how should your organization be designed in order to, to best unlock the full potential of the organization. And uh, so that's been, that's been keeping me somewhat busy for the last year or so. So with your permission, I'll put your contact details at the bottom of the notes yeah. of the podcast so that people can reach out to you directly. I think that's really powerful. And it, it really, you've kind of done a little bit of a soft sell on the power of purpose. Uh, I learned a little bit about this through my work with uh, a group here in Dallas called Stegen, which does a fantastic job with this and uh, really kind of changed the way a lot of us thought about, you know, working for organizations and, and trying to have our organizations be uh, more meaningful, if you will, uh, and finding a personal attachment to the to the organization's purpose through our personal values, um, and then linking the corporate values to personal values, then gives us a little bit more sense of fulfillment. Uh, so I think it's a really noble mission that you're on, and, and noble purpose you're on. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's I think it's it's more than a little bit of a sense of fulfillment. I think it allows us to move from transactionally moving through our workday to actually feeling fulfilled at the end of our our workday and. And it makes us better employees, contributors, leaders, but it makes us better family members and, and community members too. Because if I go home at the end of the day and I'm grumpy, that impacts a lot of people. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I'd, rather, I'd rather go home, you know, feeling good about what I've accomplished and, and why I've accomplished it. Very good. And so you're, I presume that you have, or you're building a, a company around this idea. Are you focused exclusively on healthcare, or are you focused more broadly on, on uh, across a set of industries? Yeah, I, I'm focused more broadly, actually, Todd. I, I haven't I haven't limited myself to healthcare, although I think healthcare needs a lot of help. But I've worked with with clients in a in a range of uh, industries, including in the nonprofit space and sports entertainment in 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 uh, marketing technology and 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 some others so you know if you think if you think i can help you you know give me a call man <laughs> <laughs> i know you can help me i, I need all the help i can get 
Well, Dave, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you so much for joining me and, and uh, hopefully I can have you on again. This is just wonderful. Yeah, it's good to see you again, Todd, as always. I enjoy our time together and, and hopefully we can, we can help fix the healthcare space. God knows it could use the help. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, thank you so much.